Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 75. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with co-hosts Donna and Ken. Paul is out this week, but otherwise this week we are coming in on a relative calm note. Last week we had our roundtable discussion with a bunch of UK architects about the Brexit situation, and we are now anticipating the upcoming Olympics in Rio, who had the opening ceremonies on Friday. Of course, there's also a bunch of hullabaloo with the Democratic and Republican National Conventions in the last few weeks. So we're taking this opportunity to check back in on what's happening with Donna and Ken in their professional lives and to take a little bit of a breather in the summer doldrums kind of while we still can. So let's just check in with you guys. Ken, how are you doing? Doing good. How are you? I'm just dandy. I'm in air conditioning, thank God, so I cannot complain. <laughs> California has air conditioning? <laughs> yes, it's the, really the only way that, you know, anyone can survive here. We decided to not invest anything in actually insulating our residential structures, but we have really great air conditioning, so we can keep it like an icebox. So I understand there's a lot of movement in the butcher territory. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the um, the vegan butchers have been pretty well received and and been uh, charging forward. And we're recently on uh, Guy Fieri's show, Diners. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Congratulations. Yeah, that was fun. Um, diners, the Fieri push. Yeah. DD was it? Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they were on that show. And uh, it was weird because I, I was I went to the uh, event uh, they had a little uh, party for the uh, showing of the of the show, and um, I was expecting it just to be the you know shots of the kitchen, shots of them, and shots of the food. It turned out that they actually had a bunch of shots of the interior of the space, pretty much the same shot, but it was like, oh wow, there's there's the thing I that I designed, and it's right yeah. there on TV, so it was kind of nice. But um, they're expanding. They're going to uh, Denver in September, and they hope to have a lease signed by the end of the year with uh, construction hopefully started late first quarter, early second quarter of next year in Denver. And then they're looking at L.A. Uh, for a retail spot. So Denver is probably going to be like a fifteen or 20,000 square foot facility with a retail piece. That's big, right? That's bigger than where they are now? Oh, it's it's. 10 times larger. Yeah. At oh, least. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, a leap for them. Yeah, yeah. They could fit a whole vegan cattle drive in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, they, from what they understand, they have, um, they're now, their company is actually growing internally as well. Um, so they've got a, a real shipping guru inside who said that uh, Denver apparently is a, is a pretty important shipping hub. Okay. So they're going to be nice. doing a lot of shipping out of there. And then the LA is probably going to be a smaller. Uh, version of what they have in Minneapolis because it really won't need that much. And um, there's been some talk about um, there's some some kind of um, health food store, like a supermarket chain in, in uh, California that is looking to add a vegan butcher counter. So they might be doing something Ooh. like that. And um, right now they're, we've been talking about rolling out some, um, looking at some different prototype uh, ideas for uh, different kinds of spaces, either with um, the potential of having a cafe, education space, you know, like a Starbucks inside of a um, Target kind of situation, something along those lines. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then the other fun thing, which is uh, it just, just cracks me up that they're doing this. I don't know if I talked about it at all. They're looking at doing an animal sanctuary here in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I remember. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that that's that's another project they're thinking about where they're going to do little tiny houses there and then people could rent and work the sanctuary and 
So that would be another interesting thing. And then the one other architecture project that I, that was, com at least the documents were completed, the bids uh, were done and the construction is due to start September is a restaurant here in downtown Minneapolis. Ooh. Can you say what kind of restaurant? It's going to be a kind of a um, fast casual with a uh, bar kind of uh, centered around uh, gaming. Oh, centered around like, gaming, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Ken, I thought I would have to make a more artificial move to do this, but you know, our editorial theme for August happens to be games. And we're <laughs> looking out for all of these architects who more in an academic setting are using either game theories or actual game design to better inform their practice and just better understand anything from like human behavior to pattern recognition, that kind of stuff in architecture. But also the fact that you know, architects design places like amusement parks or spaces that are then used in, in gaming territory. So that'd be really interesting if you can keep us updated on that kind of project or just what that means to then um, design a space like that. Sounds super cool. Yeah. And I, you know, when we talk a little bit more, I have a book kind of in line with your theme for this month. So um, oh. <laughs> you can't see this because, but I'm rubbing my palms together in anticipation. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. That sounds great. When we, uh, we're talking about games, I just have to remind you again, Amelia, and you probably remember that Killian Riano has used game playing in his work with urban design students. Yes. So yeah, we make sure we reach out to him for this theme. Yes. Q, if you're out there, <laughs> you will, you, we will be getting in touch with you. We will. <laughs> So what about you, Donna? Oh, it's been a crazy summer. I'm way too busy, way too overextended. There's too much going on. Um, my freelance work is continuing to barge forward. And my work at my real job is also extremely busy right now because we just started a new fiscal year, which means there's money to make things and build things now. But my husband's work has also been extremely busy. And I just wanted to put in a plug for something for him, for California listeners in particular. Brian was commissioned by a, basically it's a lifestyle development corporation that did a place in Rancho Cucamonga, California called Victory Gardens. It's very much like lifestyle exterior mall center. Although from what he tells me, he's been there the last few days and he's had really good food the whole time he's been there. <laughs> so despite it being kind of a weird suburban, you know, Insta city, it sounds like he's finding some good places there, but he was commissioned to do a sculpture there. And it is a, um, I, I think the title of it is Monument, but I'm not completely sure of that. But it is a 30 foot tall bronze palm tree that is flipped upside down. So it looks like it's been pulled out of the sidewalk. And then it's all modeled and cast in bronze. And then he worked in a uh, collaboration with the graffiti artist who goes by Re Revoke. His name is Jason Williams, and he also has a studio practice. But in the graffiti world, he's known as Revoke. Revoke painted it with a graffiti sort of scheme. And uh, it was just installed yesterday. And it's amazing. It looks so beautiful and big and colorful. And it's got this ombre effect. Is that how you say that word? Ombre? This fading effect? I think so. Like the gradations? Yeah, it's a, it's a gradation or a fade effect as it goes from the base to the top, which is actually the bottom because the thing is upside down and it works against the sky so beautifully. And I'm just so excited that he's been working on this for nine months now. And it's a big, big project and it installed and went off without a hitch. And I can't wait for everyone to see it. So I'll be sharing it all over social media. I'll also put a link in the show notes. But if anyone's out there listening in California, anywhere near Rancho Cucamonga, swing by and, and take a look at it because it's it's really cool. <laughs> Excellent. That's Yeah, that's so great. What was the uh, process like for that? How long did it take from when he was first designing it to then the installation? Well, so he, um, it was a, a call for basically three artists. Three artists were tapped and he was one of them. And as it turns out, he was in competition with someone who he has fabricated artwork for before also. But he, I think it's been 
It's been close to a year. It's been um, at least, I'd say, very close to a year, if not a little bit more. Actual fabrication-wise, it's been going since, I think, December or so. And it's all cast bronze done in little pieces that are then all welded together and, and fabricated so that the surface texture... I mean, if you stand next to this thing, it looks like a palm tree. It has exactly the texture of a California fan palm. And... Um, it's it's pretty amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, well, great. Yeah, we look forward to, to taking a look at it in, in the bronzy flesh. It is bronzy, fleshy, palmy. <laughs> um, and in fact, it, it looks like it was broken out of the sidewalk, like in a tornado or something and flipped upside down. So the sidewalk is all that's at the top of it is all cracked and broken looking. And apparently after when Brian went to lunch yesterday, as they were installing it, he came back and the contractors had actually put some extra caution tape around the base of it saying that he thought he was afraid that the, the sidewalk piece was actually cracking and was going to fall <laughs> on the heads of his installers. And Brian had to say, no, no, that's not concrete. That's actually bronze and it's welded. It's not, it's not going anywhere. But I mean, this is art, but he had to, he worked with structural engineers in both Indianapolis and California, because of course, California has earthquake codes that are much stricter than here. So, mm. you know, as if it's a building, it really is that the kind of work that goes into a monumental scale sculpture is very, very akin to what goes into a building. So yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a, quite a feat and it's super cool. Thanks for letting me talk about it. Cause yeah, I'm just so, I'm just brimming over with pride in my husband's work right now. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, we look forward to directing some listeners to see what it looks like. Thanks. Amelia, what are you up to? What have you been up to this <laughs> summer? Because you've been... Oh, uh, you know, yeah. just doing my job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's been pretty great this past summer. We've been super busy at the office getting um, kind of these themed months rolling. This most, the one we're in now currently um, in August for games, I'm particularly excited about as someone who learned the hard way how crazy difficult it is to make a working game. Not just working game, but a game that is fun to play and not, I wouldn't say educational, but somehow eye-opening in some fashion. And so for this month on Arcanax, we're going to be focusing on editorial themes having to do with games, game playing, play, of course, tying into major events like the Olympics, um, but also more esoteric stuff like how architects use game design in their own practice. So I'm really excited about stuff like that just on a nerding out level, but also that there's a fair amount of overlap that is more explicit than I ever kind of initially imagined first going into this. Tons of architects in their own practice have either developed games as modes of research to look at different urban systems and simulate city building, and not just from like a SimCity perspective, but a much more focused on whatever kind of research they're involved in kind of perspective, but also doing things just for fun and kind of seeing how they work out and yeah, challenging themselves to try different mediums and see where the where the games take them. So I'm having a great time developing this editorial with our staff here, and we've already published a couple of things, or we have a couple of things in the running to come out very soon about that. In fact, you can listen to our latest one-to-one episode, which was with Jose Sanchez, the game designer and architect who made Blockhood, which you, I mean, man, that thing was super popular. It like <laughs> was, it's already gotten great reviews on Steam, the gaming platform that it's out on. And it's not just a cool game because it's made by an architect, but also because it's in this developmental mode where he's constantly adding to it. Um, it's constantly growing while also being out in in a full state for people to play with and give feedback on. So I think it's also for, for architects to have um, not necessarily a pet project, but something that 
they can work on in a more restricted zone, like a, like a computer game where, you know, the boundaries are set, that you can release it so easily and get people's feedback so immediately on something like that. It's, mm-hmm. it's not just like a, you know, a one-off chair design or some household object or, or even a small scale piece of architecture. It's, it's really something that takes a lot of time, <laughs> certainly, and is very intense. But once it's out there, it's, and you, if you make it well enough that people can engage with it and, and have access to it, then the yield of uh, information and feedback is just momentous. Um, and that was part of a conversation that I had with Jose that I will provide a link to in the show notes for people who are unfamiliar with the game. Was the, the game's theme, did you all come up with it in, in any way in parallel with the Pokemon Go craze that <laughs> we are currently undergoing? Oh, Donna. Oh, Donna. I wish. I wish we had. Um, but no. In fact, we, of course, just like everyone else who's a you know, living being on the internet was completely immersed uh, and inundated with Pokemon Go think pieces and not so thinky pieces and flashback to, you know, what it was like to be a child in the 90s kind of pieces. And I think personally, as someone who has engaged with Pokemon Go, but still not someone who has actually really played it because my phone is just too bad of a phone. I can't handle it Uh at this time. I think that this is, first of all, just astounding how popular it is, but also... In yeah. no way the end of this. We're going to see, I'm going to see way more things dredged up from my childhood for certain AR uses and they're going to become just as popular. <laughs> That's my soft prediction. I had my first experience with it yesterday because I did allow our son to download it. He's 13 and um, we took the dog for a walk. And I mean, sure enough, he was looking at the neighborhood in a different way based on it. And he went into this church courtyard near us that he had never shown any interest in going into before. <laughs> and now he's in there exploring it and poking around and saying, oh, it's a it, it's a pokey stop. And then some guy in a car pulled up next to us and said, did you find the whatever? And it, he, that guy's on like level 500 and we had just started <laughs> 10 minutes previously. So I have to say I'm feeling pretty optimistic about it, actually, as a way of getting kids and people out in the world and actually interacting with each other, not just with their phone, but with mm-hmm. one another and with the environment. So, yeah, I haven't read many of the think pieces, but I may go back and have to do that now that I've had some experience with it. Yeah, it's it's fun because there's I don't know if it's such a false distinction or, or really it should be distinguished at all. But there was previous conversations around like gamifying the city or gamifying yeah. certain aspects of exercise or or urbanism or simply existing. And I think that that kind of term made everything feel like it wasn't a game to be won. It was more like a, a self-help tactic or something that was mm-hmm. like all about self-improvement. Whereas something like Pokemon Go, it, it seems to me like the competitive aspect of it is interesting because it doesn't seem like from what I've spoken to other people about, about who have played it, that it doesn't seem that hard of a game. Like you yeah. go around and you catch these yeah. Pokemon. They're not particularly hard to catch. It's more about, I guess, the thrill of the chase and then, I guess, accruing all of these points, which questions whether or not to compare it to something like Fitbit, which people have made comparable claims of its benefits in terms of like, oh, it gets you out walking. It might get you out like more in the city. It gets you off your phone. So, to, you know, supposedly having these benefits that doesn't pitch you in competition against other people, or I guess it can, <laughs> but it, the idea isn't to put you in this social network. It's more to like look back on yourself. So I think it's an interesting thing to compare against that kind of city engagement method. But yeah, who knows what will happen next. And and yeah, I do think that the the notion of various people all in the same space looking for either the same Pokemon or different ones is actually is a much more social and less competitive thing than Fitbits where you're just basically bragging. I mean, and good for people that use <laughs> Fitbits and exercise is really important. But um, <laughs> yeah, it does seem like there's there's less 
it's a little bit less about the competition, a little more about the getting together and having fun aspect of it, which Mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. As you said, I'm sure we will see more Pokemon Go in the future and more versions of games that get you out in the world and interact with with the built world in a way that you didn't before. What's it called? Augmented. I was forgetting augmented reality. Yes, the augmented built environment. Well, exactly on that note, what I do appreciate about Pokemon Go is I see it succeeding in doing exactly what Google Glass wanted Mm -hmm. in terms of just saturating the everyday world with access to augmented reality for people in a very accessible way. It just so happens that that augmented reality necessarily involves Pokemon. Right. <laughs> like, it's, it's like, it's like the, I guess, the uh, the three steps forward, one step back kind of exactly. thing. Exactly, exactly. We'll figure it out eventually. But that on that note, actually, this coming weekend, LA is hosting its first VR exposition. There's going to be a VR LA meeting on Friday and Saturday with a bunch of vendors and technologists and speakers to talk about and show off all this new VR technology. Um, And much of it is, if not directly relevant to architects or as they are invoked in all these different services and technologies, then totally up for grabs for architects to use. We've already seen people like Greg Lynn using the HoloLens in the exhibition at the, in the U.S.'s pavilion at the Venice Biennale this last time around. And obviously it's a very ripe medium. So where people are really excited about it, and we hope to see some some interesting architectural implications for it there. Neat. You'll keep us updated, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that we have coming up on the site, and we've been published a couple features on this previously, are our reading list features, um, where we get recommendations from different architects to give us what they're reading these days, what they're listening these to these days as well. And I would say in no small part inspired by Ken's eternal question to our guests <laughs> on the podcast, where you get to catch them off guard and say, <laughs> hey... What are you reading or listening to? Um, of which we've gotten some really great recommendations, or even if they're not explicit recommendations, a lot of great mentions of music and books for people to delve into. So I thought we could use this podcast as an opportunity to ask you guys what you are reading and perhaps listening to these days that you might want to recommend to our audience. I know. Now the tables have turned, Ken Kuzi. How about you, Donna? I actually, because I guess it's summer, I have a very strong, strong recommendation for what I just finished reading, which is the book called Underground Airlines by Ben H. Winters. And it is a, it's, it's something, it's kind of been marketed or talked about as a science fiction. It's slightly science fiction. I think it read more like a noir detective kind of novel, but it's a parallel history or an alternate history of the United States in which slavery is still legal in four states. And it goes into the sort of political and bureaucratic and governmental methods around how to deal with states where slavery is legal versus not. There's there's a whole, much like we in our actual history have, um, you know, organic free range products. These are, there are products there that are free hands, meaning they were not made with the use of slave labor. And it's a, it's a kind of terrifying detective alternate novel that makes you really look at how we do treat, especially African-Americans, Black people in our country. And it's, wonderful. It's so good. And it was supposed to be my beach reading, but I ended up actually reading it in a eight hour day of flying uh, and layovers in the airport rather than <laughs> rather than on the beach. <laughs> but I highly recommend it. Fantastic. But then a little of the controversy around it is that it is a book with the protagonist who is a black man, and it was written by a white Jewish Northeasterner. And through some of that sort of controversy, it led to recommendations of other really good novels being written in that similar genre by African-American authors. And the one that I just started two days ago, which I'm loving so far, is called Parable of the Sowers by Octavia Butler. 
And it is also a sort of near future apocalyptic science fiction and just fantastic so far, although I'm only a few chapters into it. So I highly recommend both of them. But the Underground Airlines, which I just finished, oh man, it's 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 gripping. Fantastic. Ken, what about you? What are you reading? I have two books that I, I was just pulling out recently. And um, when I pulled out this one, I wasn't thinking about the uh, Archonnect open call, but it's one of my favorite books and it's not about architecture at all. It's called uh, Man, Play and Games um, by Rod. It's uh, from 1960, Roger Calloy. How topical of you to be reading that. I the, know, yeah. In line with this, uh, with this, we're having synergy all over the place in this podcast. <laughs> And basically, it talks about how games were used throughout history to kind of create and um, guide societies and cultures. And it talks about various different types of game systems. And it's it's such a it's a short book, only about 160 pages, but it's uh, really really uh, quite insightful. And then the other book, um, which I've always wanted to mention on a podcast, so I've, I pulled it out. It's called uh, The Teach Your Chicken to Fly Training Manual. Hmm. <laughs> it is a brilliant book. I've always wanted to use it for a studio um, and to uh, just as a, as a kind of a guide how to think creatively. And um, when I first picked up this book... When I lived in Omaha, it's probably about, oh, maybe 20 years ago. I wasn't sure if it was real. There's some guy, because there's blueprints in here. There's a there's this fascinating historical narrative and it's these test flights. And so you really get the sense that this guy actually trained a chicken to fly. And it's mm-hmm. not until you flip to the back on the back cover. And it's the only giveaway that this is actual fiction. And it's a, it's a pets and humor. And it's that, that's, so, it's, <laughs> so it's listed under pets and humor, and but it's really it's a very short book. It's for kids, and it's one of my favorite all time books. And um, I think about it all the time when I'm thinking about um, <laughs> architecture. Actually, maybe it was just miss, uh, you know, miss. Um, what's the word? Misclassified or misclassified? Categorized? Yeah, maybe it was just miscategorized into the wrong shelf at the bookstore. Maybe maybe it really is real. And now the poor guy's going around saying, "But nobody took me seriously." <laughs> He's got these diagrams. He's got these models he's constructed. That's what I, I thought immediately about this for an architecture studio is he has this model. He shows it's a full scale model of a flying machine used to train a chicken. He's got a fake chicken <laughs> strapped into this harness flying awesome. over a cityscape. And it's just it's just such a brilliant way of thinking about the impossible and making it possible, if not through literal possibility, but through a kind of constructed narrative that you can see what. Well, why isn't this possible? Um, this excellent. All these exercises done in here to show that it could be. Why can't it be? So in terms of what I'm listening to, I've can I make three things I've been listening Ooh. to lately? That I've been, yeah, Ken, go been for jacked it. Jacked up on. Um, I am forever. I've been downloading a lot. I've been buying a lot of rap music lately. But the one thing that I've been really fixated on for probably the past two or three years is uh, Run the Jewels. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the best political pieces of uh, music out there is a band called Run the Jewels. And two local favorites who I'm just really, if anyone wants to know what Minneapolis sound sounds like, two artists that are on tour actually right now. One is uh, Kitten Forever. <laughs> I just love that name, Kitten Forever. Yeah, it's such a great band name. They are a crushing three-piece punk rock band out of Minneapolis that just shreds every show I've ever seen. And uh, they're crossing their way 
to the East Coast as we speak. And the other one who's got an album dropping, I think, on Friday is Haley Bonner. And she, her new piece, her new album is on, um, I think, NPR. Just uh, just put it up to for everybody to listen to. And uh, yeah, it's it's... It's one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've heard in a long time from uh, from the Twin Cities. So those are the things I've been kind of geeked on lately. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely link to those. That sounds great. Amelia, what are you listening to or reading? <laughs> ah, I knew the question would be turned on me. Yeah. Well, so I, I would like to recommend a couple books. One I've been reading for perhaps already a couple months, and it's going to take me probably at least a few more to finish it. This is a book about behavioral economics called Thinking Fast and Slow, written by Daniel Kahneman, who's kind of one of the founding fathers of behavioral economics. And the way I've been describing it to people is like a really fun textbook because it's <laughs> this, you know, incredibly, It's it's been reissued since it was first published. A lot of the research that it refers to was done in the 90s or so before, a little bit before, but has since been updated for these new editions. And I'm almost positive they modeled the design of the paperback cover after any type of Malcolm Gladwell style book. So mm-hmm. you can definitely pick it up off of like a paperback shelf and be like, oh, that I know what that book is going to be about. I know what kind of information is going to be in that book. But it's it's basically a fascinating look at many different experiments in social science and in behavioral economics done by Daniel Kahneman and others um, over the last 30 years or so that deal with human irrationality and choices and how we make choices and how incredibly bad we are at thinking rationally, especially when we think we're thinking most rationally. And this is, I will warn anyone who wants to start reading this anytime soon, it is a terrifying book to read in a political climate such as ours at this moment, because you there's so many of these studies that point to how people read information and how they make drastic assumptions and drastic conclusions about either character or about facts without knowing anything and will defend that until their dying day. Uh, One of the most fascinating pieces of research that I've come across in the text is just the idea that simply being exposed to a certain amount of information can change very concrete aspects of your behavior, such as in uh, an experiment where Stanford undergraduates were shown a description of a person and that person was described in a kind of elderly, aging, very tired and um, frail way, that after reading that description, the students were asked to move to a different room. And the researchers noticed that when they walked to the different room, they (laughs) were walking significantly slower than another group of statistically identical students who read a description of someone who was able-bodied and young and relatively quick to move. And they were able to replicate these kinds of results over many different comparative studies. And it just is one of those things you that just, for me at least, makes me just stop and drop my jaw and be like, wow, it's amazing. We can never get anything done in this world when human humanity is so flawed about it, our ability to sh- just see the world in front of us as it is and think that we can act on it in a rational way. But it's a fantastic book. So I highly recommend that. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. And that refers to the two ways that Kahneman kind of outlines as how humans think and they have this in- this level of intuition and uh, gut response to things, which is the system one and the more analytical, more forced, speculative and interrogative fashion of thinking like when, that you adopt when you do a math problem, which is system two. Okay, so to balance all of that, <laughs> I also want to make a hearty recommendation for a book 
by one of the writers on um, Amy Schumer's show, Inside Amy Schumer. Mm-hmm. One of the head writers, Jesse Klein, wrote this <laughs> really great book about her experience just growing up and also being a comedy writer called You'll Grow Out of It. And she is just hilarious. Uh, the book is full of fantastic little anecdotes about her growing up and kind of struggling with classic ideas of, of femininity and being a, a woman in the 21st century. And I just think, it, especially it's a great pa- thing to pair with a behavioral economics uh, <laughs> textbook, just as if anyone is interested. But yeah, that's those are the two kind of occupying my my brain banana at the moment. Well, it's funny that you, you are reading a book by a comedy writer, and then you also describe this textbook as a fun textbook. So it sounds like <laughs> it really, it must be a fun textbook if it's keeping your interest against a comedy writers. Thank you, Don. I feel like either I have terrible taste in comedy, or I have like a really really expansive taste in textbooks where I'm willing to <laughs> to say, oh, this is a, this is like, this is a comedic textbook. But yes, full, full recommendation for both of them. There's some really, really great stuff. Although really, I do have to warn, there's so much crazy stuff when you think about it in the context of, of our, yeah, of the garbage fire that everyone refers to as our current political <laughs> scenario. It is. It is indeed. Yeah. But we'll be out with another reading list from a few other uh, architects ne- tomorrow, so Thursday when this episode airs, and we will direct everyone to those on the show notes. And we'll include some, if Donna and Ken, if you have particular editions, especially of the books that you've recommended with like the covers and such, send those over so we can get exactly the cover image that you guys are working with to pass that on. Okay. So before we wrap things up for this episode, do you guys have any endorsements you want to share? I got excited kind of weirdly about this little article on the site. It doesn't have many comments, but it's an article entitled Phoenix May Become a Lot More Green. And it references an article in the LA Times, which interviews Richard Adkins, who is the city of Phoenix forestry supervisor, which, first of all, it sounds funny to me that the city of Phoenix has a forestry supervisor, <laughs> but they do. And it's it's talking about his plan that the city of Phoenix now has a goal to have by the year 2030, a 25% tree canopy cover within the city limits of Phoenix. And currently they have around 10% tree canopy cover. So that's not much in terms of area. I did just for fun, I looked up the cities where our hosts are all from. And in Minneapolis right now, Ken, you guys have a 32% canopy cover, which is pretty high. And uh, Los Angeles has 13. So (laughs) Phoenix is pretty low. Los Angeles is kind of in the middle, although seems like it could do better. And Minneapolis is like a third of the the area in the city is covered with tree canopy. And I just got really interested in this this article because it talks about something that I my friend Tim Gray, the architect he teaches at Ball State, used this term once that in the future we need to learn to be smart in very dumb ways. And it's the kind of thing that you look at Phoenix or and and the note the intent of these trees is to provide a shade network, basically a shade canopy that covers anywhere people are walking, just so that when you're walking anywhere outside in the city of Phoenix, you can get from point A to point B staying under shade the whole time. And this is an idea that we had talked about at the University of Arizona back in the mid 80s when I was working in the planning department there. And it's just it's a dumb idea like, okay, let's just provide shade. But it's something that makes so much sense when you think about it just on a very just quotidian level of living your daily life. If you live in a hot climate, why would you not want to walk under shade most of the way? And the article also talks a little bit about, it mentions sort of offhandedly these steel canopies that could sort of look like a tree maybe or be sculptural and also provide shade. But the fact is there are trees that provide a good amount of shade and are really water friendly. They don't demand a lot of water. And um, why not do it just with trees? Because it's a simple, dumb idea. It's good for everyone. It sequesters carbon. You know, trees are just great. So why not have more of them? So it just made me start thinking about in your neighborhood, you know, how many trees are in your neighborhood and how do trees vary across the country and the world? And 
I, I know when my husband went to Iceland for the first time, he called me and said, there are no trees here. There's not a single tree in Iceland. Like it, it just, it's just something funny to think about. So I enjoyed that article very much on the site, which is called um, Phoenix may, may Become a Lot More Green. Ken, did you have uh, something you want to endorse? Yeah, one briefly and one a little bit more, I think is a little more interesting. Just briefly, I think the uh, the piece about the Sandy Hook Elementary School is a, a pretty interesting piece to read. And I think it's instructive for architects about what not to do um, when tragedies occur like this. It hmm. seems like on the face of it, the building looks fairly nice. But I think once you get inside the building and you find out what's actually happening, it responds completely in the the way you don't want to respond as a as a piece of architecture it certainly goes way in the other direction in and over grossly over i don't know what's the word i'm looking for overprotective it, it seems more like when you get inside it's more like a it seems more like a prison than a uh, actual school that the security that's put into in, into place in the school is certainly you know seems responding to what actually happened not to what may occur in the future so again i think it's just you know again we have a tendency to fight the fight the last battle in terms of just about everything we do in this in this country so yeah and architects are no different they're fighting the last last thing i think the one the the biggest thing that i think is uh that i saw on the site that was pretty important to me was the piece on architecture students in the uk seeking more mental health care it seems to be that the that particular issue uh, again i think it's not I, I, this piece isn't really about UK architecture students, but I think it, this is probably pretty universal in the architecture schools and in the profession in general. Yeah, when I saw that piece, I think that there's, of course, a lot of things to be compared against. And, and of course, what the overall context is in healthcare. But I think that in general, just showcasing those issues and, and making a point of reporting on them is really important for the overall mental health of any professional community. You know, again, I think obviously there's a stigma. You know, I mean, if I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've probably in, no, not probably. I have suffered from depression off and on for the past 20 years and probably related to this in some ways. You know, I think you hit it exactly on the head that it's this stigma is still there and just today or yesterday, and I hate that we're in this era right now where every single thing we say, we can refer back to some stupid statement Donald Trump said. Trump made some comment that it, it, one of my friends on Facebook said in response, you know, it, it furthers this notion that there's a stigma and there's weakness attached with looking for mental health resources, that that's somehow weak and you have to just get over it and, you know, just man up and, and launch a nuclear missile or whatever. But you know, the article about UK students says that, what was it like, more women, more than men tend to seek mental health services in architecture school, and that I think something like three out of 10 women did. I can't remember if that's the, the statistic, but I mean, I did when I was in grad school. I absolutely took advantage of the free mental health clinic at the school, at the university, because it was there and I was freaking out <laughs> and <laughs> it was extremely helpful. And it just, I mean, I think that letting people know that, yeah, that's this, this is just part of healthcare is to go talk to someone, make sure you're doing okay, just to check in. And if you need further help, they will be the ones to help you figure that out because they're professionals. There's no stigma at all attached to keeping your health in a good place. And it, it irks me that people think that there is. Here, here, Donna. Here, here. Ken, did you have anything else you want to follow up now that I just ranted? <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult thing to talk about. But it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. I know. I know. Everybody <laughs> says that. I think, you know, I think because what happens, I think, is that when it's not this, it's not the idea of depression that's that's the stigma 
it's the the thing that you center it around that becomes the thing because people start to go, well, why would you ever why would you ever be depressed about something like that? Or why would you ever feel mm-hmm. suicidal about something that ridiculous? That's the thing. It's the thing that you want to marginalize my condition because it doesn't fit your narrative about what makes a perfect life or what makes what would be the thing that the reason why people would think they should they would want to hurt themselves is that's so such a small thing why would you want to ever want to think about hurting yourself over something like that and i think that's the thing that becomes the thing that keeps you from getting care is that wow this seems so small and if i was standing if i was an objective observer standing outside of myself looking at that i would say god that seems so small for you to even consider the possibility of harming yourself and i think that's what happens is that other internal voice that's kind of going that that doesn't seem hardly worth me even thinking about but then that's the thing that holds you up. (laughs) I think, though, that any architecture student would understand another architecture student being stressed out and worried about their performance on a certain project where anyone in, you know, whatever, journalism, whatever other, sorry, Amelia, I I was thinking of Brad Pitt when I said journalism (laughs) because he was a journalism major and then he now he wants to be an architect. Any student in any other curriculum that does not have the kind of intense personal production projects that we have in the architecture world would look at us and go, what, what do you mean? Why are you so worried about whether, you know, what slope that ramp is or what, what, how, whether the view looks to the north or to the west? Like, what, why is that a big deal? We architects all know why it's a big deal because we're inside of it and we're putting our souls into the design of this project, you know? And then likewise, a journalism major is writing an <laughs> article that becomes really important to them to get the sentence exactly right, where someone who's not interested in writing says, why, you know, that's, what, what does it matter where the comma is? <laughs> I mean, and I think, well, I think getting, getting a chance to speak with someone about whatever it is that is causing depression or anxiety or whatever it is, who is not in that situation and forcing yourself yeah. to get some type of, give some type of explanation that also puts you into the conversation more so than you would have to if you're just having these conversations in your head. I think that that's inevitably what's going to be helpful for anyone, regardless of, of what their particular right. context and situation is, because then you don't have to deal with your own thoughts as being either the self-pitying or the the ones that you can't listen to because you don't respect your own thoughts or so. So I think that in any case, and just being with them, um, and myself being in very intense academic scenarios, like I think that just at the at the outset, that going to talk to someone can be, that can be the fix in and of itself. Sometimes you just need to go and talk to a stranger about it. And we are, this is, you know, this is not a podcast about seeking mental health services. So of course we're all just, you know, laying out our personal experiences here, but I think that it's, it does one thing to commiserate with other people who are in the same boat as you. And then it helps to have that alternate switch where you get to go to a different perspective and and force yourself to explain, explain yourself to someone else who isn't living that experience. And it can really help remove that anxiety from your priority. I mean, the the mom in me has to say to any architecture students listening, go talk to someone, especially if it's at your school and it's free, just go do it. And they will, they will help you get a different perspective on your situation. It's absolutely worth it. This, this podcast episode is our kind of like getting an alternate perspective so we can take a break from all the wackiness that's going on and and get a little bit of like a, of a sharing circle going. But yeah, so we'll, we'll share that news post in particular in the study from the UK architects in the show notes. So people who are interested can go and check that out. Anything else before we wrap up today's episode? Amelia, do you have any uh, endorsements you'd like to make? I do, actually. Um, fancy <laughs> that. So uh, we spoke earlier of our editorial theme for this month, games. For that open call that we're doing to get people to submit 
their work in relation to that theme for this month, we proposed the idea of redesigning the absolute classic uh, Monopoly game to some effect. So there are two different ways you can submit to this open call, either in a project, so you can actually redesign the game of Monopoly through reimagining the board and the player pieces and all that, or you can refinagle the rules. What are the actual systems and structures that Monopoly as a as a piece of fun, as a competition, and as a simulation of property <laughs> development is? And so we look forward to seeing what ideas you guys come up with. In terms of other editorial on the site that I wanted to direct you all to, I'm sure people are already sick of hearing about it, but I do want <laughs> to make sure that people know about Melania Trump's supposed architecture degree and that she does not have <laughs> <laughs> um, and the fact that th this very interesting, that this whole kind of personal identity politics that has come into play of Melania claiming in her official bio that she graduated from an architecture school, that claim officially being debunked many times over. And once the public debunking had kind of finally come full, full circle, that information was removed from her website. And I think it's just good to have our coverage of that at least in your mind, because a lot of the evidence of that will probably be scrubbed from the internet if if Trump has anything to say about it, that the, the site has already been brought down or Melania's biography has already been removed from the site and the site now redirects to Trump's own website. So that reporting just stands as a point of uh, a very specific moment in our current <laughs> political campaigning system that I think will be interesting or just maybe in a way back machine kind of way. We'll come to it in a year and be like, wow, things were crazy. <laughs> and last last but not least, I'd like to point to a couple features, uh, one of which is Nicholas Cordy's recent piece about designing uh, residential architecture design strategies for increasing sea levels, where he spoke with a few different firms in the U.S. Um, in areas that are prone to flooding, such as Louisiana near in New Orleans and post-Katrina work, also in Long Island, and what could happen if a catastrophic earthquake hits in California and the flood-prone areas based on that. And one more, just because <laughs> because I have the floor. Robert Urquhart, one of our contributors from the UK, had an interview with the lead architect for the WikiHouse Foundation. So for anyone who's interested in open source design and in general, the whole Wiki universe, I would recommend looking to that interview. Well, we thought we would just have like a, you know, a short catch up kind of like relaxed episode. And now we've already gone over our usual time. But Donna and Ken, do you guys have anything else you'd want to add before we wrap up today? No, it's just good to talk to you guys. Likewise. Well, that's our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or want to share your own suggestions for recommended reading this summer, we are at ARC Sessions on Twitter, or you can email us through connect at arconnect.com. Make sure to also catch our upcoming one-to-one -one interview this coming Monday. That will be with Dora Epstein-Jones, the executive director of the A Plus D Museum in Los Angeles. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. It is a massive help, and you can always be in touch through Twitter or email. Thanks for listening. Until next week.